So if you have a Bible, we're in John chapter 20. Let me read to you our two verses. You just heard them, but let me give them to you again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What I want to do this morning is walk you through three important questions, almost like an investigative journalist. Uh, What we're going to look at is who is Jesus, what did Jesus do, and why did Jesus do it? Who is Jesus, what did Jesus do, and why did Jesus do it? See, John here, at the end of his book, many people actually think that John chapter 20 was the original ending of his book, and then he wrote John chapter 21 as an epilogue. And John chapter 20, these two verses that we just read, are fine endings to a book. He actually tells us the whole purpose of why he wrote his book. He says, I wrote all of this down so that you might believe. And so this morning, I want to look uh, not at every part of the book of John, but we're going to kind of work our way through it, concluding with his mission statement. Here's why he wrote the book. Now remember, John uh, was a close disciple of Jesus, one of his closest three. And John, after um, many, many years, a few decades, he's evaluating all that Jesus did, and he went down to write his book that we know as the Gospel of John. And here at the end of it, he's saying, and this is why. I wrote it. Now, in our New Testaments, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's the fourth. The first three are very similar. They share different or similar stories uh, and the, the kind of the sequence of them and what they record and the language that they use are all very similar. But then the fourth Gospel, this Gospel of John, is different. It feels different. It reads different. It includes different things. Why? Well, John tells us exactly right here. He says, I have one purpose for writing this book, that you would believe, that you would believe that Jesus is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so that's our first question. Who is Jesus? That's the first question that John wanted us to answer. He says he's Jesus. Now, this name Jesus is a human name. Jesus was fully human. And one of the important doctrines of the Christian faith is that Jesus was fully human. He wasn't half human and half God. He wasn't human and then God at some points. Uh, He was always fully human. John is saying uh, 30, 40 years after Jesus's ascension and resurrection, he's saying, remember Jesus? Remember the, the guy that we all knew that we saw eat and sleep and be human? The one who was born in Bethlehem, uh, the one who grew up and was a carpenter, uh, the one who we heard talk and we interacted with him, the one who died on that cross. Jesus was fully human. See, at the time of John's writing, heresy had already crept into the early church. And one of those heresies was that uh, Jesus wasn't human, uh, that he was only a god, uh, and that uh, his human side was um, just something that people had written in, uh, but that uh, he was just God. Another one of the heresies was that Jesus was human for a little while, uh, and then when he was baptized, he became the Messiah. And then when he died, he became human human again. And then when he rose from the dead, he became God. And so he was Jesus and he was Messiah and he was God, but he was not those all at the same time. 
That's not what John's teaching. John is saying, here's what's most important, that you know that he was Jesus, fully human, and the Messiah, and God, all at the same time. Now, Jesus being fully human is an important part of the Christian faith because Christians, we believe something unique about Jesus, uh, unique to Jesus, I should say, that Jesus was the only human ever to live a sinless life. And because Jesus lived a sinless life, then he could fulfill the law. And so on the cross, Jesus lived up to the perfection of the law. He fulfilled the law, so therefore he could pay the penalty of the law because he never infringed upon the law. Jesus was fully human. He's fully human, and he lived a sinless life. And so John wants us to believe that Jesus was Jesus first, fully human, lived a sinless life, unlike any other person. Now, in this teaching, John is also saying then that anyone who would teach that Jesus was just a a prophet, uh, Jesus was just a, a priest or a religious leader, a revolutionary like anyone else or like everyone else uh, is wrong. No, there's something unique about Jesus in the fact that he was sinless. But John doesn't stop there. He says he's Jesus, fully human, but he is also the Messiah or the Christ. Now this term Christ means anointed one uh, or it means Messiah, the savior. Now the idea of a Messiah or a savior had been a part of the Jewish faith since the beginning. In fact, in biblical teaching, all the way back in Genesis chapter three, it was predicted that a Messiah would come. And in the Old Testament portion of the scripture, there are hundreds of prophecies. And maybe you've heard this metaphor before uh, or this example, uh, that the probability of one person fulfilling all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is like marking a quarter, throwing it in Texas, filling all of Texas with quarters a foot deep, and then pulling out the right quarter. It's improbable. Or as my two-year-old daughter says, that's impossible. That's her new favorite phrase right now. It's impossible unless by God. Jesus was not just human, fully human, he was also the Messiah, the anointed one, and the only Messiah, fulfilled by the fact that he fulfilled all of those prophecies in an improbable manner, unless by the sovereignty of God, Jesus was the Messiah. And John wants us to know he was Jesus, sinless human, but also the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies. Early in Jesus's ministry, people started asking the question, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? And Jesus even asked once, who do people think I am? And they said, oh, you're a prophet like Elijah. You're a prophet like Moses. And since Jesus's time on earth, there are other people uh, have come and they've said, no, he's a great teacher like Jesus was. And, uh, and people have tried to say that this prophet or that person was like Jesus. No, Jesus was the only Messiah the only one who fulfilled all of the prophecies. And so he was Jesus, the one who lived a sinless life, but he's also the Messiah, the one who fulfilled the prophecies. Now, in the same way that it was good that Jesus was human, and it was good for us because it means he relates to us, Jesus being Messiah is significant too because it means that his death had meaning. As the Messiah, as the anointed one, it means that his death wasn't just symbolic, His death wasn't just a gesture of sacrifice. No, his death was actually a payment for sin. Around here, we say a redemption payment. 
See, the way John is writing this is he's building a case. He's saying Jesus was the, the perfect, sinless human, but he was also the Messiah. And so when he died on the cross, his blood shed was actually the payment for our sins. That's what made him Messiah, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so the belief that we need to have is he's Jesus, human, sinless, perfect life. He's Messiah, the one and only one who could save us, the one whose death had a great significance and not just symbolically, but actually paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because he lived the perfect life, then he could fulfill the ramifications of the law and he could also take on a penalty though it was unjust for him to pay it because he was perfect, he paid it for you and me. He's Jesus, fully human, and the Christ, the Messiah. And he came to rescue us. That's what made him Messiah. And so uh, we then would say any other person who claims Messiahship is wrong. Anyone else who would say uh, that other prophets have um, arisen later that are just as meaningful as Jesus. Anyone who would say, well, Jesus was just a great teacher. No, Jesus was more. He was a great teacher, but he's much more than that. He is Messiah, the Christ. He fulfilled the prophecies. But John then takes it a step even further. See, some people would say, yes, Jesus was a great human. He was a great teacher, but they wouldn't give him the rank of Messiah. And other people would say, well, Jesus was a Messiah, but there's other Messiahs. But then this third one, John adds to it. He says he's Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, the son of God. He's God. He has always been God. He was both fully human and fully God. This is unique to this Christian teaching that we believe that Jesus was both of these at the same time, fully human and fully God. John 3, 16, maybe the most famous passage in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Who was that son? Jesus. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus was God from his uh, inception all the way through, that he actually never ceased to be God. He was always God and will always be God. He's the son of God, but he is God. He's a part of the Trinity or the Trinitarian nature of God. And he proved it. When? When he rose from the dead. And so the sequence here that John is establishing is he's Jesus, fully human. He's Messiah, the anointed one, the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies, the only one whose death could pay the penalty of sin. But then he is also the son of God, the one who conquered the grave, who rose out of the grave, who showed the power over death. He's Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. And John says this. He says, I wrote this entire book so that you would believe that. So then as you look through the book of John, it starts to make sense. See, even reading this last verse uh, should prompt something in us to want to go back to the beginning and now read it through the filter of how the book was laid out. The whole book of John has one point, that you would believe those things, fully human, Messiah, God, sinless life, death on a cross that paid sins, resurrection, power over death to grant eternal life. It's why it was all written. Now, Jesus, this is back in the text. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John is saying, I could have written a lot more. There could have been uh, many other stories. In fact, at the end of the next chapter, uh, when he really finishes out the book, he says, uh, there's so many stories, all the books in the world couldn't fill them. But he didn't write all those stories. What stories did he include? He said, but these, these and so we have to ask, well, what are these? What, what are these? What, what did he write? But these are written. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he says, these signs are written. These things are written. John uses this word that none of the other gospel writers use. And the word is signs or simian. And what it means is an indication of God's miracles. But John says, I wrote all of these in there so that you would believe that he's the Christ, the son of God. And so as you look then through the gospel of John, chapter one is just this setup of who Jesus is and who has always been. But then you get into chapter two and John uses chapter two through chapter 12 to prove one point, that he's Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, the perfect human, the one whose death mattered and who rose from the grave. And so who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of God. What did Jesus do? Well, according to John, in his layout of this, as he's building a case for who this person is, he shows seven signs. Now, the number seven is a significant number in the Jewish faith and in, uh, consequently then in the Christian faith, the number meaning perfection and completion. And so John writes seven signs or seven stories in his gospel to prove his point. And the first one is in chapter two. In chapter two, um, Jesus hasn't really made himself public on who he is and what he's about. And so he's at this wedding. And at the wedding, his mom is there and uh, some of his disciples are there. And at the wedding, they run out of wine. And so they... Um, are kind of freaking out because they ran out of wine. And Jesus, his mom, comes up to Jesus and goes, hey, uh, they ran out of wine. Can you help them out? And Jesus says, not really my time. And she goes, why don't you just go ahead and do that? And so Jesus kind of shows, shows his human side. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll obey my mom. And so Jesus takes these jugs of water. And these jugs of water uh, were a sign of the purification rites of the um, Jewish faith. And so Jesus takes this uh, water and he turns it into wine. And then John writes later and he says, now this was the first sign. So in Jesus' very first sign, and by the way, whenever Jesus did miracles, there was something physical going on and there was also something symbolic going on. And so Jesus' first sign is that he's gonna take what was old and what was the religious system and he's gonna turn it into something new. Here, a new wine. And all throughout the gospels, a new wine represents a new covenant that Jesus has. And so this is his first sign, his first sign. And then I think it's two chapters later in chapter three, uh, Jesus is out and he's walking around with his disciples and this guy shows up and he says, hey, my, my son is sick and can you do something? And Jesus says, well, do you believe I can do something? He goes, yeah, I believe. And he goes, well, then your son is healed. And the guy starts going home. And as he's there, he meets one of his servants and his servant says, hey, your son is healed. And he goes, well, what time was he healed? And he goes, oh, he was healed at this time. And he goes, oh, that's exactly when Jesus said he was gonna be healed. As if Jesus is saying, I have the power now to heal. I have the power to heal your child. I have the power to heal. Even when I'm not present, I can heal somebody. Scripture says that was the second sign. 
Then, now just a couple chapters later, remember, all of John is written to prove that he's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, right? And so now we're just going another chapter, so there's a little bit of transitional story, but most of those stories are just Jesus making his claim as Messiah and the fact that he is the Son of God because John is focusing everything to one point. And so then the third sign, Jesus is at this pool, and this pool is known to have healing powers, and everyone's gathered around the pool. And the first person to jump into the pool when it uh, does this thing gets healed. And there's this guy who's been there at the pool for a very long time. And he is never the first one into the pool. And so Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? And he says, well, yeah, but I can never get into the pool first. And so somebody else gets in and then they get healed and I don't get healed. And I've kind of been forgotten and there's no one here to help me. And I can't get myself into the pool. And Jesus says, well, do you want to be healed? And he says, yeah. And he says, well, then why don't you just be healed? And the man is healed. Third sign, Jesus is saying, even those who can't heal themselves, I will heal. And then it's just another chapter. We get into John chapter five and Jesus is now growing in his fame and his popularity. And uh, people are wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the guy that we've been waiting for? We know he's human, but is he the Messiah? And so they're all gathering around to listen to his teaching. And it says that there's thousands there at this point. I mean, 5,000 at least. And they're listening to Jesus teach. And as Jesus is teaching on the mountainside, apparently he teached or preached for a really long time, taught, because uh, people are there and they're hungry. I mean, Jesus can tell that they're getting hungry. And so he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, will you feed all of these people, they look hungry. And his disciples look at Jesus and go, there's no way we could feed 5,000 people. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they said, well, there's just one young man who has some, some fish and some bread. By the way, you can't read the Gospels and not see that there's not symbolism in fish and bread. I mean, Jesus called himself the bread of life, and he said he came to make people fishers of men. And so he looks at this little boy, and uh, he grabs the food, and he prays over it, and then he gives it symbolically to his disciples. And then his disciples take the fish, right? The disciples who are going to become the fishers of men take the bread of the one who is the bread of life and passes it out to everybody. And he feeds 5,000 or so people, and there's leftovers at the end. The bread, by the way, represents the doctrine or the teaching of Jesus. And in the fourth sign, Jesus is saying, I am going to have a, a message. I'm going to have a doctrine. We know it as a gospel. I'm going to have a message, and there's going to be enough of it to go to everybody. And the disciples, my followers, are going to be the ones who are going to spread the message, and it'll never run out. Fourth sign. This is all the stuff that Jesus did. And then immediately after that, John includes this in his gospel. He said all of the people wanted to make him an earthly king, but Jesus didn't come to be an earthly king. Jesus came to be Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, not an earthly king. He came to be a spiritual Messiah. And so John includes this transitionary statement in his gospel when it says that the people wanted to make him an earthly king. And it said that Jesus withdrew from that because that's not why he came. And so Jesus went and hid from the people when they wanted to make him their, their political revolutionary leader. And so his disciples get in a boat and uh, the disciples are out on the boat and Jesus had withdrawn to pray. And then as the disciples are out in the middle of the water, Jesus goes, oh, I should probably go meet up with them. So he just walks on the water. He walks out on the water and he has this conversation with um, uh, Peter and, uh, and, and, and others. And, and they, they begin to believe this then is his fifth sign showing that he has power over the elements. 
couple chapters later, Jesus, by the way, the signs are like increasing in their amazingness. I mean, the first he, started, he turned water into wine and somebody might argue and say, well, you know, there's scientific ways to do this and that could have happened and all of that. But by the time you get to the fifth sign, I mean, he's walking on water. But then the last two signs are like um, culminating in something. And then in the sixth sign, Jesus is going uh, to visit a friend. Uh, sorry, no, in the sixth sign, uh, Jesus is walking around and he's teaching still and somebody approaches him and the guy is blind. And Jesus interacts with this blind guy and the religious leaders have um, cast this guy out. They basically said, if you're blind, that means either you or your parents were really, really sinful. And so they have nothing to do with the guy. But Jesus looks at the guy and says, do you want to be able to see and he has this conversation with the man, and the man says, of course I do. And Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And once he heals him, all of the religious leaders freak out. And they're like, how did this happen? And they start questioning everybody. And at the end, the guy goes, listen, I don't even exactly know how all of this happened, but here's what I can tell you. I was blind, but now I can see. And it was Jesus who healed me. And they go, no one has ever seen anything like this happen before. But that's not even where Jesus ends. It keeps growing. And so I think it's the next chapter. I think we're in John chapter 11 now. Jesus is journeying to go visit some friends and one of his friends, his name is Lazarus. And they say, hey, go visit Lazarus. He's sick. And he says, yeah, we'll get there in a couple days. We're in the couple days it takes Jesus to get there. Lazarus dies. And as um, Lazarus dies, his sisters, Mary and Martha, who are friends of Jesus, go out to greet Jesus. And Jesus has these conversations with them. One where he teaches that he has the power over life and death. Uh, another where he just weeps because he's sad because of the sorrow he sees in his friend Mary. And because the fact that his friend Lazarus has died and Jesus shows up to Lazarus's tomb and he looks into the tomb and he says, Lazarus, get up and walk out. And Lazarus walks out and he says, take all of his grave clothes off of him and set him free. And in his seventh sign, the seventh one being the number of completion and perfection, Jesus actually raises a man from the dead. And then chapter 12 is all about the religious leaders freaking out because people are turning to Jesus and believing in him as Messiah because he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Like the signs have grown in such a way that the people are now believing. And then John does something interesting. Unlike all of the other gospels, after he's explained what Jesus did, he transitions in chapter 13 to the last week of Jesus's life. And John spends about 45% of his gospel just talking about the last week of Jesus's life. Why? Because he had one point that you and I would believe that Jesus was the Christ, the son of God. And so he spent the first uh, 12 chapters just talking about the signs, the signs that were leading up, the signs that were leading up to a final sign. And so in chapter 13, he begins this um, process of leading up to the last week of Jesus's life, which is going to culminate in the last and final sign. And that's what we've been studying this whole last couple of weeks in our series, I Saw Jesus. See, the last sign is going to be Jesus, the, the sinless, perfect human, going through a, a human process of being tried by a court, being sentenced to death, being beaten, being wrongfully accused, and then being placed on a cross. 
But he goes to the cross as the sinless human, but he goes to the cross as the Messiah, the one whose death matters, and the shedding of his blood would be the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, dies on that cross. But three days later, as we've been talking about since Easter, he rises from the dead, this being the eighth sign. And the eighth sign is just the culmination of the first seven signs. Because in the eighth sign, Jesus goes, uh, in, in the eighth sign, in his resurrection, he, he's saying, now there's a new covenant. And so all of the old Jewish rites, those are gone. And now there's a new wine. I am the new wine. Here's a new covenant. All of those who are sick uh, can now be healed because of me. All of those who didn't uh, on their own, couldn't get themselves into the pool and heal themselves. You don't need to heal yourself anymore. I have healed you. I can heal you spiritually because of what I did on the cross. Uh, there is enough of my teaching and my doctrine to go not to just 5,000, but to all people. All of those who have been born spiritually blind will now be able to see Jesus doesn't have just the power to walk on water, the power over that element. He has the power over life and death. Jesus couldn't just raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus has the power over death now because he rose from the grave. All of what John writes is for one thing, that you would believe that he was Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. All of those signs, those seven, and this final resurrection sign. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Who is Jesus? He's the sinless human who was the Messiah, whose death mattered, who rose from the grave because he is, is God. What did he do? Seven signs, but then an eighth sign. He rose from the dead. Why did he do it? So that you and I would believe and then would have life, eternal life in his name. And so as you study the gospel of John and as you look at this story, it's all moving to one question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that he is Jesus? Not just a human, but the only human that lived a sinless life. Do you believe that his death was the only death that could pay the penalty of your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the grave because he was God, but that his resurrection from the grave now can grant you eternal life? You say, well, what is belief? What is belief? And when the Bible uses the word belief, here's the definition that it means. It means a conviction full of joyful trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the divinely appointed author of eternal salvation in the kingdom of God conjoined with obedience to Christ. How do you know you believe? Because a joy has risen up inside of you that says, I get it. Now I see 
Jesus. I see Jesus for who he is. I see that he was the, the perfect human. I see that his death did pay the penalty of my sins. I see that he really did rise from the grave, granting me eternal life. And I believe it. Do you believe that you have life and can only have life through the powerful name of Jesus. You can't just believe he was a good human. You can't just believe that his death was an example of love. You can't just believe uh, that there's a great story of redemption uh, and that maybe he rose or maybe he didn't, but it's a symbolic story. No, you believe he was perfect. His death paid the price and he rose from the grave. And it is the only thing that gives eternal life. Do you believe it? See, there's a moment in time in your life where you go from someone who just kind of knows the story to somebody who says, I've seen Jesus and I believe it and I'm stepping into my salvation. I'm professing faith in Christ and Christ alone. And I'm declaring that only by the power of Jesus' name do I have eternal life. Have you believed it? If you're ready to believe it today, if you're ready to believe it today, pray this prayer right now with me. Jesus, I believe all that you were human, sinless, the payment for my sin and the resurrection from the grave, I believe it. And I ask for life, eternal life in your name. I believe in the name of Jesus as my only salvation. The scripture says, if you pray that, then you've gone from death to life, from eternity in hell to eternity with Jesus forever. If you've prayed that prayer, if you've believed that, would you let me know? Send me an email. Send me a Facebook message. You have stepped into your salvation by the name of Jesus. For the rest of us, let us not forget the end of that definition, that uh, believing produces joy and obedience. Deference to the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name. We're gonna sing one last song together. While we sing this song, if you've taken a step in your faith today, please let me know. Also, during this last song, uh, it'll be a time for us to take our offering as a church. Uh, we give out of what God has given us, salvation to us on the cross. And so we'll take this time right now. You can give online, log in, experienceredemption.com and give out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. You can also mail checks in um, to our office address. That address is on our website. During this last song, feel free to give uh, and to give generously and then also just to enjoy the fact that Jesus is the name of our salvation. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. 
We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon. 